The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across Ukraine, analyse a new British plan to aid Ukraine's energy sector through the winter, and discuss Elon Musk's Starlink satellites and the billionaire's unpredictable influence on the course of the war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of August, one year and 180 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Politics Reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, and Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody, and a happy National Flag Day to all our Ukrainian listeners. So, first thing, alleged Ukrainian drone attack on Moscow has damaged a building in in the central business district. That's according to Russian authorities earlier today. That's the sixth straight night of aerial attacks around Moscow. So they say air defences downed one Ukrainian drone in the Mozaisky district and one in the Himki district of Moscow region. That's from the Russian MOD. But the third drone hit the hit one of the skyscrapers, the the one called Moscow Towers. I think that's been hit before in the Moscow City Business District. This is about three miles to the west of the Kremlin. Um, so just outside the centre itself, big swanky business district. They're saying it was uh, suppressed by air defences and so and so came down. Very dramatic footage on our on our website and elsewhere. You'll see that. Now, staying inside Russia, go down south a little bit. The governor of Belgorod region says uh, what they're playing another Ukrainian drone strike this morning, saying it's killed three people. So Vyashilov Gladkov said on social media, the Ukrainian forces launched an explosive device through a drone when people were on the street. Sticking with that, I mean, we, we can't verify that. We've not seen any footage there. That's all we've got to, to go on. Staying with drones and this subject, uh, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock, she has defended Ukrainian drone attacks against Moscow and saying it was within the bounds of international law. Obviously, we've been discussing this of late. So she was speaking at a joint news conference with her Estonian counterpart, Margus Sagna, uh, in Berlin. And Ms. Baerbock said, quote, Russia has attacked Ukraine and therefore Ukraine has a right enshrined in the UN Charter to defend its country, to defend its people. Russia has violated the prohibition of the use of force in the UN Charter. Russia is bombing civilian targets in Ukraine relentlessly, targeting grain silos, hospitals and churches. Ukraine is defending itself within the framework of international law. Now, at the same press conference, Mr. Sackner said Russia is responsible for starting the aggression. Russia is responsible for starting genocide. Russia is responsible for everything that's going on, that, sorry, that it's doing in Ukraine. We must push Russia back to Russia. We must use every kind of opportunity for that. I mean, we spoke yesterday about, about drone strikes and no doubt that's, that conversation will, will carry on and where the moral line is. But for now, let me carry on with the news. So this morning, so now we're inside Ukraine uh, in, in Romney, a town in the Sumy region. So we're about 150 k's due east of 
Kiev. At least two teachers were killed and three other people wounded in an attack at about 10 o'clock this morning. That's according to Ihor Klemenko, the interior minister. Then we move down south and there have been strikes on Ukrainian ports in Odessa region and on the Danube River overnight, reported to be drone attacks, setting at least one grain storage facility on fire. That was according to um, local authorities and Ukraine's MOD. Now, these attacks were the latest on port infrastructure on the Danube. We know that Ukraine is obviously using or moving grain from the Romanian, or sorry, across to the Romanian port of Constanta. And that's that's been happening since Moscow quit the, the UN brokered deal, the grain ship, the, the grain deal. Um, the Ukrainian MOD said the enemy hit grain storage facilities and a production and transshipment complex in the Danube region. Fire broke out in the warehouses and was quickly contained. Firefighters are continuing their work. Now, you'll see published photographs showing piles of grain under burnt and sort of wrecked shell of the storage facility. The governor of the region, governor of Odessa region, Ole Keeper, said that the uh, attack lasted three hours and that in addition to the ones that got through, nine Russian drones were shot down. But he said, unfortunately, there were hits to the production and transshipment complexes where a fire broke out. Um, staying in the south, but let's head slightly east towards Hezon. Two bombs there, one in a kindergarten, one on residential buildings in the city, injured six. And I think we're going to see m- more of these. Tomorrow is in, uh, Ukraine's Independence Day, so I think today and tonight's going to be very busy for Ukrainian air defence. But let's stay in the south and drop down to Crimea now. And a Russian S-400 air defence system at Olenivka, that's the the most westerly point of the peninsula, which is or or was probably there to protect Sevastopol. That's been destroyed by a long-range strike. So it's about 100 k's directly due south of Herzon City, so a long-range strike. Very dramatic footage released this morning shows the, the whole installation exploding. Very dramatic. So I've got two things about that. Firstly, something's obviously got through the Russian air defence network again, probably missiles, but, but it could be drones, probably missiles. So it's an air defence system, and yet something got through. So, I mean, these are these are new-ish. Well, they're the best ones they got, the S-400s. Why are they why they're not able to protect themselves, let alone... I mean, I'm guessing they're there to protect the, the approaches to Sevastopol, but something got through again. And then the second thing is, the fact that we can see these images means that there was, in all likelihood, a drone, but something there filming it for us to be able to see it. And so that thing was there because it shows the initial explosion. So it was there before the site was hit. So that system was working, you know, slash it. They might not have switched it on, but the the site was there and should have been functioning. And yet you've got a drone in the air filming the strike that's about about to hit it. I just don't understand why the drone was not seen and shot down or jammed by electronic warfare. And how the missiles got through. I mean, there are big questions here for Russian air defenders, but it does continue the the pattern of recent long-range strikes as the as the counteroffensive is slow, or as expected, to get through the the very very dense Russian minefields down south. They have shifted tactics about six weeks ago. You may remember to to keep to keep pushing on south, but also to to go for those long-range strikes to get rid of the ammo dumps, the fuel supplies, the headquarters, that kind of thing, so that the the area at the front are denuded of power, fuel and, and weapons. So I think that continues that pattern. And then just finally, Ukraine has raised concerns after Russia returned the bodies of a dozen soldiers that it had apparently um, been holding prisoner. 
A government spokesperson said the Russian side has already handed over to us 12 bodies of our prisoners, which were previously confirmed by the Red Cross as being held captive in Russia. There were no reports from Russia either about their deterioration of their health or about the serious condition, which again calls into question the quality of work or the presence of a medical commission on that side. Obviously, once you are hors de combat, once you are no longer a combatant, you're off the off the field of battle, whether you're civilian or or military person, you are afforded all the rights and protections under the UN Charter and an international humanitarian law, and you should be protected. So unless there's some a very good reason as to why 12 people who had been visited by the, the Red Cross, and I, I'm guessing they mean the International Committee of the Red Cross and not the local Red Cross, because there there's a slight difference, but the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, they have the right to go anywhere they like and, and, and see and check on the, the welfare of any prisoners. If they had seen them and they were they were alive, then you know you need a you need a very good reason as to why they are no longer for us not to assume that something else has taken place. But I'll take a pause there, David. Thanks very much, Dom. Great to welcome back Genevieve Hole Allen, political reporter in the lobby at the Telegraph. Genevieve, today Grant Shapps, the UK's Energy Security Secretary, announced a new one hundred and ninety-two million pound loan to Kiev. It's an announcement, you know, we, we it's been a bit of a surprise for us here in the office. What's this loan for and why now? So yes, as you say, David, Energy Security Secretary Grant Shapps has announced this morning that Britain is financing an enriched uranium deal to help Ukraine run their nuclear power plants over the winter. So he wrote in the in the Telegraph about this, Mr. Shapps, and he said that this agreement will bolster Ukraine's energy security by supplying vital fuel for the country's plants over the coming winter, and will further isolate Putin. So how will it do this? Well, the £192 million deal will support more enriched uranium being provided um, by Urenco, which is headquartered in the UK, to Ukraine's Energol Atom, which runs 15 power plants in the country. The loan will aim to minimise future blackouts in Ukraine in the months ahead. Nuclear power generates over half of Ukraine's electricity and in the past, before the war, many plants used Russian enriched uranium to function. So this approach has obviously had to, had to be reconsidered. Urenko has been a supplier to Energoatom since 2009 and the support announced today will enable the further supply of services with much of these deliveries coming from the UK. And the chief executive of Urenko said... Since the start of the invasion, we have provided support to our customer, Energoatom, and its employees and increased our supply of nuclear enrichment. We are actively discussing longer-term supply with Energoatom and are ready to play our part in supporting their future. We have the capacity to meet current demand for uranium enrichment services and options to increase this to provide an enhanced offering globally. And he continued, collaboration from governments such as the UK with this agreement is critical to facilitate this, as well as with customers and the wider nuclear industry. And we will continue to do all we can to play a valuable role. Mr. Shapps actually has visited Ukraine this week to to coincide with this announcement. And Shapps met with the president of Energoatom, Petro Kotin, to discuss this deal, as well as the country's deputy prime minister for restoration, Oleksandr Kubrakov, and energy minister, German Galoshenko. And in his piece in The Telegraph, Mr. Shapps says, we should all take pride in the role the UK is playing, not just in helping Ukraine's military repel Putin's forces, but also aiding the country's recovery. Russia has used energy as a weapon of war. 
Thanks, Genevieve. Could you just give us some of the background for this decision and maybe recap the the ongoing Russian assault on the Ukrainian energy infrastructure? Yes, so Ukraine's energy infrastructure has been under assault since the beginning of the war, but things stepped up in particularly in particular last autumn when Russia began striking coal-fired coal-fired power stations, electricity substations and other grid equipment across the country during those colder months. And strikes on these facilities were pretty much a a daily occurrence. And it was estimated that after some attacks last winter, as much as half of the national energy system was disabled. Um, There is, of course, significant concern too surrounding the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has been discussed on several occasions on on this podcast, and it's the largest in Europe, the power plant, which which Russia currently controls. Uh, A huge amount is being done in Ukraine to repair the energy infrastructure, even as the war continues, but it is getting towards the end of summer now, so thoughts will be increasingly turning towards how to keep Ukraine warm during those coldest months when it can fall to to minus 20 degrees uh, centigrade. Now, we have, of course, had Prime Ministers Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak visit Ukraine, as well as Foreign Secretary James Cleverly and Defence Secretary Bren Wallace in the past. But the fact that we've now had uh, Britain's Energy Secretary also visit Ukraine shows how firmly Britain does continue to stand behind Kyiv. This morning, Mr Schapp shared a photograph alongside Mr Galashenko, the the Energy Minister for Ukraine, and Deputy Energy Minister Yaroslav Damchenkov in Kyiv, obviously, on the eve of Ukrainian Independence Day. And and Mr. Schapp said, from energy security to defence, the UK will always stand with Ukraine. And I think that is one of the main headlines of this, that that the UK is is showing support in yet another critical sector to Ukraine. Thanks, Genevieve. Just very quickly, as as you mentioned, Mr. Schapps was in Kyiv early this week and he wrote up uh, his visit for The Telegraph. It's on our website today. So I'd advise uh, all of our listeners to go and read that. Would you just summarise some of some some of his more personal points? I mean, he's got experience hosting refugees himself. Yes. So the the piece about this announcement mainly, it it does strike quite a personal tone. He speaks about a visit to a power station in Kiev, which has been damaged by Russian shelling, as well as the destruction of Kiev in more more general terms, which he described as agonising. And as you say, David, yes, he he writes about the Ukrainian family that he took in under the Homes for Ukraine scheme for a year, which he said had a significant impact on on him and his family hearing hearing their stories. So a little boy called Nikita lived with Shap's family, along with Nikita's mother and grandmother, after Nikita's kindergarten got damaged and the family decided to flee. And Mr. Shap's writes about visiting this kindergarten and showing the staff and children there a video that Nikita had recorded for them. So it, it is a very pers- it has a very personal tone to it, uh, as well as obviously announcing this major uh, piece of um, support. Well, thank you very much, Genevieve, for bringing us that. And thank you for coming into the office from the lobby. I know it's, a, it's, it's, it's an effort for you, so it's great to hear you again. We'll obviously come back to you later for your final thoughts. But can I go to Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes? Joe, you've been looking at some of the diplomatic and political developments to do with the invasion of Ukraine in other countries. Can we start in a story you wrote up with Natalia Vasilieva about issues in Ireland? We have a lot of committed and Irish listeners, and it's a very interesting story you've been looking at. Hi, folks. Yeah, let's, um, so let's start in Ireland and Dublin. So as our listeners will know, Ireland is a country which is militarily neutral. It's not a member of NATO. It isn't a member of any sort of defence pacts or to be alike. But it has never 
hidden away from picking sides, especially when it comes to Ukraine. And so what we've had in the last week or so is the Irish government has been accused of what critics basically say is a cover-up after it emerged that Irish troops were part of the European Union military training mission. But instead of just committing to non-military, sort of non-offensive training, the Irish, about 30 Irish soldiers involved, were actually giving weapons training to Ukrainian troops. The move itself to basically... So initially, when Ireland joined the EU training mission at the beginning of this year, it said it was basically going to give combat medicine training. It was going to help with mine clearing training. So very sort of non-offensive operations. Um, But yeah, so basically, there has been no public announcement that training has been upgraded. So as I said, Dublin initially announced its 30 personnel would drill on sort of landmine clearance, combat medicine in February. But in a marked departure from that, the Cabinet quietly approved a memo last month which would allow the training of forces in combat skills, including rifle training. And this has been reported across the Irish media, uh, broadcaster RTE, the Irish Times. And it's prompted a fair amount of critics who fear for various reasons that Ireland is slowly moving away from its status as a militarily neutral So Paul Murphy, an MP, or TD, uh, to use the official terminology, for the left-wing People Before Profit and Solidarity Alliance, said officials had opted not to tell the public the nature of the exact training that was being given. Uh, Herman Kelly, who's the president of the Eurosceptic Irish Freedom Party, claimed the move was the final nail in the coffin for even a pretense of Irish military neutrality. So, as I've mentioned... Ireland is militarily neutral. It is not a member of NATO. It has a defence pact with NATO, I think, called a, a, a peace pact that dates back to 1999, 2000, around the turn of the century. But its troops train with NATO countries and they take part in sort of exercises and various different operations to basically help their own for their own benefit, but not a NATO member, not a member of any defensive alliance. So although it's Ireland is militarily neutral, the country's government has insisted it is not impartial over Russia's invasion of Ukraine and supports Kyiv. And it has provided sort of medical supplies, armour, body armour, helmets, fuel and other non-lethal materials. It still hasn't donated weapons as far as we're aware. It does, Ireland does take part, uh, is one of the 54 countries that has taken part in the US-led Ramstein Group, which coordinates the ongoing donation of military aid to Ukraine. Um, So despite the criticism, the Irish Department of Defence has come out and said, look, the decision to expand its training offerings to Ukrainian troops beyond sort of just medical and landmine clearing is there's no conflict with Irish military neutrality. And this is a quote from the spokesman from the department. Providing soldiers with basic military training, including leadership and drill instruction, does not impact this policy of military neutrality. The statement went on to say, Ireland is military neutral, but not politically neutral. In standing with Ukraine in the face of an illegal and immoral invasion by Russia, which is in violation of the UN Charter. So a chap called Colm Grothy, an MP for the governing Fine Gael party, part of the ruling coalition in Ireland, uh, one of Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach or Prime Minister, his party, said the decision to upgrade the training was it within the confines of recognising our military neutrality 
and recognising our political support for Ukraine. So that's one sort of diplomatic spat within a country supporting Ukraine. But then I will move on to a diplomatic spat between Ukraine and another country. So in recent weeks, there has been a lot of tension brewing between Israel and Ukraine. So Ukraine has threatened to bar Jewish pilgrims from visiting a holy site in Uman in central Ukraine, just sort of southwest of Kiev, if my geography is right off the top of my head as part of a sort of a growing feud with Israel. So Kiev has accused Benjamin Netanyahu's government of enforcing widespread deportations uh, of Ukrainians and leaking confidential details of meetings from that Ramstein military group to Russia. So that's quite the accusation <laughs> there. So for years, Orthodox Jews from Israel and beyond have been flocking to Uman in great numbers for a religious holiday, which is coming up. So Ukraine's announcement would essentially jeopardise Hasidic Jews' plans for Rosh Hashanah, a major Jewish holiday which falls next month. So Yevon Kornishuk, Ukraine's ambassador to Ireland, said in a statement last weekend, the government of Ukraine will not tolerate the humiliation of its citizens upon entering Israel. He claimed that around 10% of Ukrainian tourists from Israel are being deported from the country without explanation. President Vladimir Zelensky, who is uh, Jewish, has raised the issue recently, and he's promised to stand up for the rights of Ukrainian citizens. Um, but then earlier this month, a Ukrainian defence source told the Kyiv Post there was a real danger that information being discussed with Israel at the sort of Ramstein meetings, which are held across the world, mainly on the sidelines of sort of NATO gatherings, because the majority of the countries hail from the NATO alliance, this source told the Kiev Post that information will probably fall into the possession of the aggressor state when discussed with Israel. As we know, Israel has not essentially been critical of the war itself. It's tried to remain neutral, but it has tried to also provide support for Ukraine. So as a result of this spat, Ukrainian officials have suggested they could terminate the country. So Israel's visa-free scheme, which allows Israeli citizens to enter Ukraine basically without a visa, for three months at a time. They are also lobbying to have Israel excluded from future Ramstein gatherings. So it's, it's quite an interesting mix of stories there on the diplomatic front, that especially when you look at Ukraine, when it's receiving aid, and a lot of people are telling Ukraine to be grateful for the aid it's receiving. It's, it's, not, it's still... Um, not holding back and pulling its punches when it feels that it's being uh, mistreated or essentially when information is potentially reaching the Russians. We know because of there are lots of, uh, won't say cosy, but because of the nature of the religion and the state of Israel being a Jewish state, lots of Jewish people, populations in, in Russia. So there is naturally a lot of flow between Ukraine, Israel and Russia in either way as part of the religious hub. So that's interesting there. And then the next story I'd like to speak about is another chapter in Elon Musk's essential influence when it comes to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. To mind, of any private citizen, despite him being the richest man in the world, Elon Musk has sort of had a considerable amount of influence in Ukraine Probably more, and I'm sure analysts uh, would say it's unhealthy for a man to have capabilities he does. 
especially when some of the stuff he's doing is relatively weird and shady at times. But I will point you all in the direction of uh, Ronan Farrow's piece in The New Yorker. He's done this fantastic sort of long read looking at Elon Musk's influence in the United States. But if you drill down and read into it, there are some sort of fantastic nuggets about Elon Musk's role in Ukraine, mainly focusing on uh, Starlink's uh, satellite internet network, um, which, to those that don't know, is part of Elon Musk's SpaceX company. It provides for a constellation of four, around 4,000 satellites, um, high-speed internet to those on the ground with uh, special Starlink terminals. Um, and for obvious reasons, Starlink has become such a useful tool in Ukraine for both civilian and armed for- the armed forces. Um, so... When Kherson was occupied in the final days before its uh, liberation from Russian hands, I remember having to being lucky enough to have a contact in Kherson who had a Starlink terminal. And the only reason that I could speak to him when the Russians had cut the internet, cut the phone signals, was because he was able to log on to his Starlink terminal and essentially send us WhatsApps and Telegrams. Um, for the military, the Starlink has been the backbone of their military communications, allowing intelligence officers, reconnaissance officers to basically speak and often broadcast real-time battlefield video and information to artillery units, to various sort of infantry units, and basically allowing a really sturdy communication network to be put in place. But not during this counteroffensive, but during the initial counteroffensive, that network started to fall apart near the front lines in in the south, in Zaporizhia, in Donbass, in Donetsk and Luhansk, and also in Kherson. And basically, when the Ukrainians started experiencing these blackouts, they were really nervous. They were like, we are basically losing soldiers because of this lack of communication. So they went to the Americans and basically asked the Americans to act as mediators with Elon Musk because the Ukrainians and some Americans believed Elon Musk was deliberately geofencing where these Starlink terminals could be used. He was essentially cutting off their their network. And Ronan Farrow, in his piece, has got an interview with a guy called Colin Carl, who is a former senior US defence official in the Pentagon. He was the Undersecretary uh, of Defence for Policy, a slight mouthful, um, and I think he gave up that role in July. Um, But it's the first time we've heard from a really senior US official on the record who's dealt with Elon Musk. And so according to Kyle, Musk had basically been a bit worried that he was being perceived in Russia as a warmonger, basically (laughs) enabling Ukraine to go on the offensive and attack areas of land from their own country that had been occupied by Russian forces. So Mr. Kyle recalled how he told Elon Musk, look, if you turn this off, it doesn't end the war, because Elon Musk had come up with a very various different ideas in his head that he thought could end the war. He thought Vladimir Putin wanted to end the war and wanted to start talks. And then Sir Colin Carl goes on to say, my inference was that he was getting nervous that Starlink's involvement was increasingly seen in Russia as enabling the Ukrainian war effort and was looking for a way to placate those Russian concerns. So last year, we know that Elon Musk was accused of publishing Kremlin-friendly peace proposals suggesting that Ukraine should mirror sovereignty referendums organised by Russia in regions it occupied. When I was speaking about the outages earlier, those outages were felt hardest in Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk and Donetsk, where 
those referendums had been organised by Russian proxies. So during his negotiations with the Pentagon, Elon Musk revealed that he had held personal talks with Vladimir Putin. That was broadcast and known at the time, but Elon Musk rode back at, back at it. But Colin Carls basically said, look, he told us that he had talks with Vladimir Putin. The technology entrepreneur has had long reservations over how his system is being used for offensive capabilities. It was recently reported that he had forced Ukraine to drop a planned naval drone strike in the Black Sea by refusing access to the Starlink network around occupied Crimea. He has kicked off about the cost of it and said, look, we can't sustain the cost, so let's let's close it up from that various ways. He, I think he said in a letter to the Pentagon that his company is spending about $400 million a year to uphold that that system, and that was a report by CNN recently. So for various reasons, <laughs> Elon Musk has played this really strange, influential role in the in the conflict in Ukraine because of his basically ability to turn off the Starlink system at the drop of a hat. And um, how it, this comes to a close, and hopefully his sort of role in it is now ended, is... The Pentagon in June of this year announced that it had struck a deal with SpaceX to maintain the system's use in Ukraine without disclosing the exact terms of the agreement. But we believe that this pact gives Ukraine unabridged access to the system. It basically can't be turned off at the drop of a hat. Elon Musk can't just go, you know what, I don't like what's being done with it. Because he, he at one point said he was getting nervous because he could see the entire war unfolding for a map on his laptop. He could basically see where... Ukraine was uh, conducting offensive action through his through his using his Starlink terminals. So hopefully this deal struck in June uh, is an end to that kind of problem that hangs over Ukraine. And I'll stop there for now. Well, thank you very much, Joe. That was incredibly comprehensive for talk, talking us through two diplomatic stories and the uh, the Musk story, of course, that came out this week. Um, before we go to our final thoughts, can I ask you, obviously, Joe, you spent a lot of time with the story looking at Musk. Do you think that it's at all predictable what he might do next? I mean, as you said there, you know, he's, he's, he's now out of the game, if you will, as, because the Pentagon have taken this over and, and, and are running it. But do you have any sense from getting close to the story and reading up that we, we could predict where what his next actions might be or his next statements might be at all? I mean, how much of a problem is this now? As I said, he's the, he's the richest man in the world, so he's going to have a lot and lot of influence over whatever he wants to have influence over. We only have to look at what he's done to Twitter and um, turning it into what do we call it now, X, known formerly as Twitter. He has caused all sorts of problems when he wants to cause problems. If he wants to go off on a free speech crusade, he does that. I think the fear with Elon Musk is that he has essentially towed a pro-Russian line throughout this conflict. And... Anything he does, uh, whether it be in business or just for his own interests, he only have, he's he's quite um, a spontaneous character. You know, what's he what's he organised a cage fight with Mark Zuckerberg just because they had a little spat over the internet? So it's I wouldn't want to second judge Elon Musk. But while I while I say and report that the Pentagon's deal should close the Starlink chapter for a while, and you can guess is. Starlink being used now by the Ukrainians in these sort of deep strikes in the Black Sea? Have they now got connectivity out in that region to use these naval drones all of a sudden? Or 
or are they using pre-programmed called coordinates? We don't know. But I sense Elon Musk's won't want to be left out of this story. He is very much a, and I will probably get banned from X for saying it's an attention seeker, like most uh, most billionaire tech gurus are. So I, I I wouldn't want to speculate, but I'm going to say Elon Musk won't have ended his story with Ukraine and Russia for now. But hopefully the deal struck with the Pentagon, which we believe to be an actual contract, a legally binding contract, will hopefully keep Starlink in play for the benefit of Ukrainian civilians. So they they keep communications open for hospitals, for sort of the points of invincibility that have popped up over Ukraine, where it gives people access to charging points and internet connectivity, keeps them afloat, but it also keeps the military's application of float as well. So fingers, fingers crossed he keeps out of Starlink, but I'm sure he'll voice some opinion, especially when peace talks start to ramp up in the future at some point. Well, thank you very much, Chopans, for all of that. Dom or Genevieve, final thoughts? Well, I suppose, I suppose just going back to, to Grant Chap's announcement and what it generally is, is telling us uh, about Europe and the, and the West's view of energy and the energy sector, obviously as a whole, it has had to become a lot more independent from Russian gas since the outbreak of the war. That, that, that is taking place, it was taking place in the UK, France, Italy, Germany. Uh, and and I suppose this this policy is a kind of it, it's close it's close to that it, it is to do with energy supply and and it's kind of separation from Russia and I suppose also this announcement and, and Grant Shapps's visit to, to Ukraine comes just two months after the UK hosted the Ukraine Recovery Conference in London where several nations came together to to commit to assisting Ukraine's recover, recovery. And um, this this policy announcement is obviously about getting Ukraine through this next winter, making sure that there are no, you know, there are there are as few blackouts as possible. But as the company Urenko said, that they're looking to support Ukraine into the future now, and, and there does seem to be a, a longer term infrastructural lens being applied to Ukraine support um, at, at the moment. Thank you very much, Genevieve Hall Allen, Dom Nichols. Now I want to just have a, a brief chat about the. Um the BRICS summit that's going on in South Africa at the moment. Now, Francis gave us a, uh, a long, a long, a long download on uh, the BRICS summit yesterday. So if you want the, the full ins and outs, then do listen back to that. But just to say that, that Vladimir Putin has not gone. We knew that. We knew he wasn't going to go. He attended. He gave a 17 minute speech this morning by video link. Apparently he attended virtually attended the dinner last night i mean god there's been some dinner parties i'd like to have just dialed into on zoom but you know that's taken it to the uh, to the limit president xi of china it was also a no-show today now he was in town he was in johannesburg there's suggestions he was ill he's not lost interest or boycott or anything like that so don't 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 take that thought but putin not not turning up now he will often say that the, the world structures and what have you, all these kind of things are um, are outdated, no longer relevant. He's not bothered by them, but he clearly is. So he didn't turn up to uh, the, the BRICS summit in South Africa because the ICC, the International Criminal Court, have, have a case against him for the deportation uh, of children from Ukraine. So he would say, ah, big, big deal. What's the ICC? Nothing to me. I don't, I don't care. But he clearly does. And a lot of people write into us and say they feel very frustrated and what can they do? We are one one lone voice, we have no power, etc. etc. What what can we do? Well this just shows the the strength of of coming together and lobbying our political leaders and, and these kind of things clearly do get through the armour of, of Putin and, and, and they do matter. 
and linking it to the I'm still looking at the images here from 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 India. Um, so India, obviously, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South, um, South Africa. They are trying to expand it into to include a number of other countries around the world. They want to, they want it to be a sort of a block uh, against the sort of Western led or US led economic block, if you like, G G seven. Um, but you know, if you look within that, then look, look what India's just done. They've just they've just managed to land on on the moon. The biggest are they by population? I think the biggest country in the world. And Russia obviously had the Luna 25 crash earlier in the week. So in terms of where the where the political heft is and the and the sort of soft power is moving in the world, I think I think there's some interesting moves at the moment. You know, India here doing this thing on the moon, which is the start, looking for looking for water at the South Pole because that that may then be the the site of some future populated research station. So that's why they've gone to the South Pole. And these things are very tricky. I get that. India succeeded. Russia did not. In the same week as Putin did not turn up to the to the BRICS summit for fear of being carted off to the ICC, something he says he professes he cares nothing about at all. I just think there are some big, big things happening here that show where international soft power is really is really moving. Thank you very much, Dom and Genevieve. Joe Barnes, would you like to go last with your very final thoughts? <laughs> Thank you. So I want to speak about two articles that have sort of emerged out of the US in recent days. Uh, one at the Financial Times, which uh, is headlined, the US grows doubtful Ukraine counteroffensive can, ex- can succeed quickly. And the next piece is a New York Times piece titled, Ukraine's forces and firepower are mislocated, US officials say. And basically the premise of both stories is American complaints that Ukraine is handling its counteroffensive incorrectly. So in the New York Times piece, it says American strategists say Ukraine's troops are spread out and need to concentrate along the counteroffensive's main front in the south. So they're looking at the Orokiv axis, the one pushing south through the Zaporizhia region, south towards Melitopol and the Sea of Azov to basically sever the so-called land bridge between occupied Crimea and mainland Russia. But what we have here, and it it goes back to what we were saying the other day about this report in Germany saying that Ukraine isn't using its Western training to full effect, is we essentially have more sort of armchair generals who are sitting thousands of miles away from the front line complaining that Ukraine isn't doing things how they would do it. Um, And... Yeah, I'm sure we can all have criticisms over the counteroffensive at some stage. Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky, sorry, has had his own complaints, or not complaints, but he's saying, look, it's not going as fast as we all expected. So, but this is where I come to the idea that potentially, instead of complaining that Ukraine isn't doing it fast enough and to the NATO standard training it's being given, potentially the West should be looking and wargaming the next stage of support for Ukraine. We often hear that Joe Biden, um, it was said by Boris Johnson, it was said by Liz Truss, it's said by Richie Sunak now, it's said by Olaf Scholz in Berlin, it's said by Ursula von der Leyen here in Brussels, that we are all with Ukraine until the victory. So I guess Western leaders now, instead of complaining that Ukraine's counteroffensive might only make it halfway to the Sea of Azov before the rainy season kicks in in, say, four to six weeks. We should be looking at 
this turning into a longer attritional conflict and basically look at planning towards the end of 2024. Obviously, none of us want this conflict to go on that long, but it's time to start focusing on what the West can do next. There is some arguments in America that, oh, we can't give attackums over because we don't have enough of them to actually make a difference on the battlefield. So we have to, instead of complaining that Ukraine isn't using weapons how you wanted them used, we should be looking at focusing on what can we do and actually coming up with a strategy for what we can do that will help Ukraine rather than just rebutting their rebutting their requests for aid, military aid, and complaining that the counteroffensive is going too slowly. We need to um, actually sort of fulfil on that promise that we're with Ukraine until until victory and until the bitter end of this conflict, rather than complaining. Um, and it's kind of an open-ended question that we should all be looking at is, what is next? And my thought on that is in a, a long-term attritional war that is going to go on into 2024, maybe into next summer when the ground is hard again and forces can move about. But we need to we need to start thinking about that rather than complaining about Ukraine fighting a war how it wants to fight a war, how it wants to lose its people, how it wants to lose equipment that's given to it by Western countries, um, not how we think it should be, how it should be done. And I'll stop there. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.